Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Evolution of Contractor Management, sponsored by Aveda. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. For basic troubleshooting, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. Additionally, slides will be available for download in the Resources widget, also at the left -hand, lower left-hand corner of your screen. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today will be Lori Canopy, HSE professional at Aveda. Lori brings more than 20 years of industry experience. She is a certified DNV auditor and holds a master's training certificate for aerial working platforms and forklifts. Again, we thank all of you for tuning into this presentation. Lori, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Okay, great. Thank you all for joining. The first thing I have to do is I have to apologize to the audience. I've woken up this morning with a little bit of a raspy voice and sore throat. I'm not sure if it's our crazy weather down here or allergies, so I apologize. And if I pause for a moment, I'm just going, I'm just going to reach for a cough drop, and hopefully that won't happen. So let's get going and uh, get this taken care of. <clears throat> So contractor management, you know, today we're going to take a look back at the evolution of contractor supply risk management, talking through some current challenges and mitigation methods and ending with what the future may hold so that we can start to think about it and plan for it. <clears throat> it's always important that we look forward, no matter what we're doing, whether we're safety planning, whether we're cost estimating, or whether we're production planning, we always need to have that forward look. So contractor management, contractors impact the livelihood of most companies. Very few people actually work from raw product to finished product. And um, usually you have contractors that come in and do specialized things. So it's really important to take care of that and control that. And obviously a robust contractor management program can collect assess and provide vital data back to the company so that you can make appropriate business decisions and choices. So where did contractor management come from? Contractor management really started to take off about 30 years ago. Um, it really started to see a swing when industries became more global, companies became more global, its supply chain changed, procurement changed, and the realization that com contract companies needed to be managed like any other business line within an organization really came to the forefront. 
they realize that because folks are coming onto your property or perhaps you're hiring people and sending them to other people's properties, that to align your safe work practices and your skills and knowledge and abilities and scope of work was critical to the success of any project. So what is contractor management? And this is a really great statement. Contractor management is a systematic process of controls to verify contracted work is performed safely and that the company's safety processes and safety performance objectives and goals are met. It is a systematic process. It's a, a vetting process, it's an intermediate process, and it's a follow-up and closure process. It is a true section of your business like any other thing, and it needs to be given that kind of time and attention. So this is kind of how the contractor flow process works. And <clears throat> this actually is two slides that we're going to show. So when you're first starting to look at your contractors, you have to identify what works and activities are going to be performed. And then you have to draft the scope of work and decide who's going to do this and who's going to do that. And then the next thing is to approve the scope of work based on skills, knowledge, and abilities. And then we're going to look and we're going to say, okay, now we have that contractor management in place. This document needs to be executed. And then once the document is executed, you can schedule work. And then the hiring company is responsible for scheduling that work and conducting an agreement session with the contractor. This has to be a joint agreement because it affects everybody's workers and it affects everybody's time. So we need to make sure that everybody understands clearly what's going on and what their expectations are. History of contractor management. You know, the history is pretty, pretty funny when you think about it compared to today. In past practices, you just simply issued them a PO or they billed you on an invoice, or for some folks it may have even just been a phone call or a handshake. You've worked for that company and the dad for five generations and everybody knew each other and that was great. However, a lot of stuff has changed. And with regulatory requirements and legal requirements, those kind of casual contractor management systems just don't work anymore. And you shouldn't want them to work anymore because you want not only your people protected, but you want their people protected as well. So we really need to look at what needs to be done and how are we going to manage that. And then obviously with technology, both internet and equipment, risks have increased. Uh, the ability to pre-qualify contractors has, has increased. And all of that makes everything a safer environment. So typically, data that was collected was your typical like SSQ, your safety supplier questionnaire that would be sent out. And they were just a series of yes, no checks boxes. Does your leadership, you know, is your leadership responsible? Uh, do you have a quality program? Do you have an environmental program? Do you have a dedicated safety person? What's your TRIR? Do you have any citations against you? Do you have a drug policy? Those are great to know, but that paper and just that yes, no checkbox, it really didn't add any value. It didn't give the hiring company an insight as to what the contract company was really all about. So the, the, the paperwork SSQ has kind of gone away and it just isn't used and isn't, doesn't show the value that we need today. So we also have another paper contract that's used, our master service agreements. Master service agreements are still used 
And there's absolutely nothing wrong with them to identify scope of work, cost of work, insurance requirements, all the legal ramifications, and all of those dedicated things that your lawyer wants to see and that your HR department wants to see. But that kind of information doesn't really flow down to the work level. The master service agreement is multi pages, and I'm sure probably everybody has seen one, but they're just a very broad statement that you're going to be the tugboat company or you're going to be the welding. It doesn't get down into the specifics of the scope of work. So while you know your master service agreement has a benefit for some companies, especially for smaller companies, the MSA is too generic. It doesn't detail properly and enough who's responsible for what work and whose safety policies or safe work practices are going to be followed. So MSAs are still used and they definitely still have value to outline scope of work insurances, payment, start dates, end dates, penalties for not ending on time. But they're not quite what we're using when we're talking about, you know, evolution of managing contractors. So where have these documents evolved to? Many companies at different levels use different agreements. Some of them are a little more in depth than others, and some of them are very high level. It really depends upon the scope of work, the risk that's attached to that work, the amount of spend, and the authority that the contractor is going to have. Some contractors are the only worker on site. It's not always that the, that the hiring company is on site at all. They may never be there. So the responsibility and the authority to the contractor can be pretty great. And then obviously, like we say, when you look at risk, spend, volume, those are the things that have to be looked at and that have to be addressed in your, in your agreements. So stop and think about some of these things. You know, what is your company's status? Are you using an agreement document? Is your document clear and defined and does not leave anybody in confusion? Does your document get communicated to the supervisors and the field people or the people on the floor? And what type of document are you using? Did you know that there's more than one? You know, we have letters, bridging, interface, and these are just some examples that I'm going to share with you so that if you haven't seen them or thought of them, they might be what you want to use going forward. So the agreement document process is pretty clear cut. You're going to talk about the expectations to the contractor. You're going to review the work on the contractor safety management system and programs. And you're going to do the document process as to what work activities are to be conducted and who is going to be performing those. And then the next thing is which parties' policies and procedures are going to be used. That's really important, especially when you're talking about multiple companies, perhaps at a construction site. If you have SIMOPs going on and you've got multiple operations, it's really critical that that general manager or that hiring contractor understands which policies and procedures from what contractor are going to be used because they're not all the same. So once you have your contractor selected, and you go move forward with your document process. Same thing again, we need to look at the policies and procedures that are gonna be listed in the agreement. Both companies need to sign and need to be aware of what they're agreeing to. And the reason for me that that's so important is that sometimes the agreement documents never leave the HR department. 
the safety department will decide this, or perhaps the operations manager will decide this, and it doesn't encompass everybody that should have a say. It's important when you're looking at responsibility, liability, and scope of work that you bring in every discipline that should be involved. And that should be process, you know, your, your procurement folks, your engineers, your designers, your safety team, your operations team. Let them look at everything that's being proposed as well and have their say. Because everybody brings knowledge that other folks may not have. And one of the big things is the agreement document needs to be facilitated by those with the appropriate authority and responsibility over the agreement. So your HR admin should not be the one telling who to do what because they most likely do not have the appropriate knowledge and responsibility to tell a welder what to go do or to tell a crane operator what to go do. So again, that's bringing everybody into the mix to make sure that the appropriate people are there and that they understand what's going on and what agreements have been put in place. Emergency work. So emergency work is interesting because you can't plan for everything. Sometimes something happens. Something breaks, something changes, the scope of work changes, a piece of equipment didn't arrive on time, and you've got to have an emergency call out. So when you're looking at your agreement documents, you should have a process in place for, for emergency work, and you should have someone that's responsible for that. So kind of what we recommend is that you have your person with ultimate work authority, your superintendent, your director of manufacturing, or whoever you decide that person is going to be. And they are the one that can generate an emergency agreement so that you don't have to hold up work over a weekend or a holiday or whatever the other situation may be. But those people need to understand the scope of work, they need to understand the requirements of the company, and they need to understand that that emergency document needs to immediately be communicated back to whoever within your company handles all of these, these bridging agreements and these work contracts. They need to know that something happened so they can come back and generate the correct type of document and make sure that everybody is aware and clear of what was happening and how we're going to move forward with that in the future. So you have to have some type of provision within your uh, contractor management system for emergency calls out because they happen all the time. So this is one of the documents that I wanted to share with you, and this is just an agreement letter. And it's very basic, it's very high level, and it's fine for simple work. If you've got someone coming out that's just doing one singular task, it's going to be three days and no more. Something like this might be all that you need. The agreement is made between company A, company B. The contractor has agreed to perform under these terms and conditions. The description of work should be put in so that there's no confusion. And then potentially you could have a payment and a work schedule. If, the payment, if this isn't the correct place for your company where you want to put finances, that's fine. But you should definitely put duration. Um, and that's an important thing because if it goes beyond the anticipated scope of work, you would need to either extend this agreement letter or you would need to know why. Because these agreement letters are not meant to be long going. They're meant to be just a short, short job and a, and a very quick job. A 
different type of contractor agreement is what I refer to as a bridging agreement. So the bridging agreement I really like. The bridging agreement, you can list whatever your programs are, whatever your program elements are, whether it's general practices, health, um, health and safety analysis, operating procedures, safe work practices, crane operator, it doesn't matter. You put the scope of work elements in there that work for you. And then underneath, you can put the bullet points of exactly what's gonna happen. Then you can assign whether that work is gonna be done by the hiring company or whether it's gonna be done by the contractor. And that can be really important because obviously, if your contractor is gonna be your welder or your contractor is gonna be your lockout tagout, you're gonna follow their operating procedures. You're not gonna follow yours because the contractor has been trained to their operating procedures. And then you can put in the comment section, we will use this operating procedure, we will use their operating procedure, or any other comments that you feel are necessary, and certainly any other reference documents that you feel is necessary. But this is a really great assignment of work, and this is a really great document when you have multiple companies because again it gives the name of who is responsible for performing what task and that type of document could be attached to you know whatever your process is whether it's a job trailer whether it's a router whether it's you know a, a day plan a tally book whatever you use in order to communicate the work this is usually uh, a pretty pretty simple form so it's really easy and then it makes reference going back well who was supposed to be doing this oh we said this contractor and again when you have multiple people on one job site that is a really big benefit because you know who to go to if you have a question about what's being done or why it's not being done and this one here I'm going to interface agreement because it's really more in depth and this one here is probably something that you would complete during your discussions and during your uh, pre-job evaluations and conferences. This one here, and again, you can do this in tabs. Let's put this on a spreadsheet. So everything that you want to ask about, the same thing again, hazard analysis, risk mitigation, safe work practices, emergency response preparedness, spill response, whatever your work agreement is, you can really put in much greater detail about what you want to know rather than just the, uh, the bridging agreement, which is a condensed version of this. This one here really outlines what's expected. And the thing that I like about this particular document is, you know, like when you get down here, you can put a break anywhere. You can make these questions as long as you want them to be, and you can put a break. If you know to question 1.4, then please move on to the next tab um, so that they don't have to, so that your supplier doesn't have to try to answer everything if it's not necessary. That may be the stop gate. And that's what's really great about this document is you can move and adjust that stop gate anywhere you want it to be. But this one's definitely not something that you would take out on the factory floor or out in the field because this document can be pretty big but this is a great document to use during the bidding process. So how do you decide which one to agree to? So that's really kind of easy. So you review your tasks and activities, and then you decide whose safety policies, practices, procedures you're gonna use, and then you go through 
and you conduct an assessment of the company, and then you decide is that first very high level agreement letter okay? And it may very well be. Or do you want to go down more into the bridging document and complexity of hazards associated with the work? And then depending upon how much detail you need, you're going to branch off and use either something like that bridging agreement or go further on with like the interface document, depending upon the level of detail that you need. You may use a combination of the interface and the bridging. You may use the interface during your discussions and your pre-work conversations and then make a condensed version to give to your, to your field hands and your floor hands. So these are kind of some questions that you might want to ask during that bidding process. When you're looking at this, you know, these are some questions that are kind of important to know. When you're looking at your supplier, what's needed? Why is it needed? When is it needed? What special skills, knowledge, and abilities are needed? And what style of documentation is needed based on the scope of work, risk, and spend? These will help generate and help generate the right kind of questions to ask, additional questions to ask, and obviously it'll help generate what kind of document you need to create. So during your survey process, this is just kind of like a little wheel. You know, ask your right questions, collect the data, store and maintain your data, store and analyze your data, and making the decisions based on that data. And unfor not unfortunately, but the reality is, is that the decisions that you make are only as good as the data you can collect. So going back to the other side, what do you need to ask? Why do you need to ask it? How in-depth do you need to go? It really is going to depend upon risk spend and uh, headcount and volume, risk spend and volume. Um, and then that way there, you have as much information as you possibly can have to make those smart business decisions. So where do you start? The first thing you do is you have to determine the work that's going to be done. What do you need done? And does it need to be done by more than one contractor? That's your very first thing. Then you need to determine what criteria for evaluating and selecting the contractors or subcontractors are you going to use. Is it just past history? Is it someone new? Is it cost? What are the determining criteria that you need to look at? Then you need to communicate your expectation to those contractors, making sure that they clearly understand what you need and what you're looking for. And then obviously our communication agreements. Those are so important and they're so vital. I, I just can't recommend ever doing anything on a handshake or a verbal commitment any longer. The way that things are with the internet, an immediate notification of anything that's gone wrong, you really need to have a written document for protection for you and protection for the supplier. So it's kind of a four-level process, um, and there's the four tiers that you kind of want to work through. And we want to do, as we said, the selection criteria, and then we're going to look at assessment and evaluation. And we're going to assess and evaluate the contractors on a variety of things. Obviously, one of the most important things is their safety performance. We have to remember that if they don't have a good safety record, we want to look at why. Sometimes it's scope of work. It's, it's the hazard that they do. Sometimes it's their training or their lack of training. And you always have to remember 
that they're bringing their habits to your work site. So if they don't have a good safety program, you need to find out why. And you can't look at just their accident and injury rate. You know, TRIR is a good basis and it's a good foundation to start. But if you have a small company that has very low man hours, one accident or injury is going to put your TRIR out the roof. And it doesn't mean that you're not a good, safe company. It just means that you're a small company and you don't have the protection of a larger company that may have hundreds of thousands of man hours to buffer those accidents and injuries. It's also important that you look at what the accidents and injuries are. Because again, the same thing, it could be a recordable because they got stitches, or it could be a recordable because they have an amputation. So taking that deeper look at their safety programs will help you evaluate if they're the type of company that you want to bring on to your work site. And then, of course, obviously, verifying the safety programs and requirements to meet the expectations. It's critical that you set the expectations of what you want. Most companies want you to at least meet or exceed OSHA. And again, they should also meet or exceed your safety programs. They need to behave as if they're an extension of you because they are an extension of you. So you want to have that two role that they're going to meet and exceed federal regulation and that they're also going to abide by your safety policies as well. And of course, obviously, training skills and knowledge. Training skills and knowledge is really important because having a body, a, a person there, doesn't necessarily mean that they're the right person for that job. So sometimes we do look a little deeper and we should look a little deeper as requirements and where that training is coming from. And sometimes, depending upon the risk of the work involved or the high volume of the work involved, you may even want to look at where that training came from. Not all training programs are the same. So you may want to look and see what was covered in that training program and perhaps even do a site orientation yourself and really get a feel for what their knowledge base is. If you have a contractor that has not had such a great performance, and they do have some, some dings on their report or some issues, that doesn't necessarily mean, like we spoke before, it could be because they're a small employer. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use them. It just means that you need to have some type of remediation program in place. You need to have some type of performance review in place. Whether you're going to give them a waiver that they can work this one job or they can work the calendar year, or whatever your company parameters are, but you clearly need to have something because sometimes you do get in a situation where they are the best contractor or they are the only game in town. It happens. So again, to protect you and to protect them, you need to have some type of plan in place that you're going to put them on a safety improvement plan, uh, almost like a performance improvement plan, but a safety improvement plan, and then follow it to fruition. Make sure that you on your end to give value to it, make sure that you follow up and make sure that they've done all of the things that they've said, their performance has improved, and that they aren't repeating the same hazards. So then when we're looking at contractor management, we come to the really big piece, which is the partnership. And it is really important for hiring companies and contractors to have that deep relationship. That partnership is everything. You know, contractors are used so much. It's, I think there was a report that they were 74% of the workforce globally is contract run. 
that kind of involvement with how your business runs deserves to be treated like they're your own people. So you need to bring those contractors in and provide them with everything that they need to be successful in their job and not treat them like they're the stepchild. Treat them as if they're part of your family. And you need to develop those strong relationships and those long-term relationships so that when you have a problem, you can have honest conversations and work it out rather than just discard them because things happen. And sometimes you don't want to penalize a really great contractor just because of one mishap. So having that line of communication and interaction with each other really builds those strong relationships. And then here's a little graphic for what we've been talking about. So you're going to set your expectations. You're going to assess and evaluate. You're going to put a remediation program in place. And then the top of the pie, of course, is those partnerships, those long-term lasting partnerships where you know what they do, they know what you do, they know what's expected of you. But it's important to knock it in a rut. It's important to make sure that you continue to review policies and procedures, that you continue to do spot checks, just as you would on your own folks, on your own employees, to make sure that everybody is still in that good relationship. So companies are linked together by contracting, and that is so true. Like we said earlier, hardly anybody does anything from raw material to shipping out the door to the customer. There are so many levels of contractors that we use, regardless of it's janitorial, if it's welding, if it's you know IT, it doesn't matter. We use so many contractors at so many different levels. And not only do we use contractors within our own companies, but we'll hire a company to come in and do a total job. You know, if you're a general manager or a product manager, you'll hire an entire company to come in and build something or design something. So there's many levels of contractors, and very few companies do not use a contractor to some sort. So it's important that we understand and that we manage them properly. And we also have to have that connection to the subcontractors because sometimes the contractor will say, oh, yeah, I can do that, knowing that he's got a buddy or he's got a friend or he's got a relationship with someone else. So you need to make sure that your master agreement, that your master service agreement, that your contractor management agreement takes into account that third level or fourth level of subcontractors as well because you want them to abide by the same policies and safe work practices. So this is kind of a contracting chain. You start with your hiring company or your host company, and then they might hire a head contractor and then to be the project manager, the general manager, and then they will hire it out to a contractor. Sometimes it stops there. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it goes on and on and on, depending upon, let's say, with construction and you're building a strip mall. You've got multiple people that do multiple things, so you've got a lot of subcontractors running around in there. And it's ultimately the hiring company's responsibility to manage all of those people. So that part of your supply chain of your contractor management can really get a little dicey. And it can really be hard to keep track of those people when they're three, four, five tiers away. But that is definitely something that you need to have in a conversation at each level and make sure that you're aware of who's doing work for you, no matter how far away from you it may be. And then this is another version of how companies are contracted together. And for this particular version, it's a little different because it shows kind of your relationship 
You could have, you know, two companies, a joint venture, um, you know, ABC and DEFG that are both companies and not contractors, but they have a joint venture. They still need that agreement. Or you could have a company that is really just the name on the door and everybody else does things for them. So they have a very deep relationship with other companies that they work with, a 50% partnership, an 80% partnership, something along those lines. And then you have the situation where you have a company and a contractor. You bring in one contractor singularly, and that may be how you run your business. But like we spoke about, you have a company, a contractor, and a subcontractor, and you need to make sure you manage that. Sometimes we allow contractors to manage the subs. We don't necessarily do it ourselves because that can be incredibly labor-intensive. But some companies, like the very bottom um, display on the right, some companies prefer to manage everybody and to manage all of those contractors and to manage all of those agreements continually until the work is done can be a really big project. And that's when you have to have a tool in place or you should have a tool in place other than a spreadsheet and paper and pencil because things fall through the cracks. So you need a really great tool. And certainly with the internet, there's a lot of those out there that can help you keep up with stuff and take some of that burden away from you. So you need to look not only do you have just a step-down kind of contractor management program or do you have joint ventures and singular contract management or multiple contract management that you're doing all yourself. You need to really look at how your company is managing its workforce. So there's so many benefits of contractor management. And obviously, everybody going home safe at the end of the day is the top one. We don't want anybody hurt. We want everybody to go home safe at the end of the day and be able to have a happy day and a happy life with their families. So we need to really look at everything that happens and we need to really take care of it. We need to look at accidents and injuries. We need to discuss them. We need to determine if a contractor is within OSHA's acceptable limit or within your acceptable limit with the TRIR. If their EMR letter or their risk ranking is outside of OSHA, that may be all you require and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But maybe you're a step down from OSHA. Maybe you want your companies to be a little more safety conscious. Um, another thing about contractor management is insurance requirements. You have to make sure that those certificates of insurance are accurate and that they absolutely outline the work details and what's responsible. There's kind of the formularies in place where we know what we need, but again, depending upon the risk the volume and the spend, sometimes those insurance requirements can be changed. They can be increased. They can be waived. Um, and that's where you have to look at the work and the risk associated with that work. You can also put a grading system into your contractors. You can have levels. It's common for large companies that use a lot of contractors to have anywhere from 300 to 800 contractors that they use on any given day and they'll risk rank them and they'll have their ABC, their preferred, A, they've got no issues, B, they might have a little issues, C, they can't work if they don't have approval from a department head, whether it's the VP of safety or the VP of operations, those kind of things and the grading depends upon what the issue is. You may have seen that with 
um, supply chain management systems. And those are really great for a couple of reasons. It gives a great visual as to the safety performance of the company you're bringing on to your site. And it also kind of helps you from wasting time looking for folks that may not be quite so, so safety savvy, which is really what we're all about. And then a big one, a really, really big one that's really taking a turn, obviously, is safety culture. Um, safety culture and leadership is really taking a strong run uh, throughout all industries. It doesn't matter what your industry is because we want companies to have a good safety culture that is from the top down. And management has to lead by example, and management has to take that handle of that and make sure. Because if you don't have a good safety culture in your company, the people that are hiring you aren't going to expect you to extend a safety culture to their company. So showing that you have that corporate social responsibility and a really great internal safety culture will absolutely increase your ability to, to seek work. Going beyond compliance, it's okay, like we spoke about, to use TRIR and to use OSHA standards, and that's okay. However, sometimes you have to look beyond that. You know, you could have a contractor that performs, like we spoke about, that performs a certain process, but they demonstrate a poor safety performance. You need to look at why, and you need to determine if that absolutely knocks them out the gate or if there's a way to work around that. There's a lot of great companies out there that are hindered or can't work, whether it be because insurance requirements are too high or accident and injury rates are too high. And you know, like we mentioned about, when I'm auditing companies, I do look at their accidents and injuries because depending upon the type of injury they have and the severity rating, to me, that's as important as to how many they're having. Or if I look and see that all of their accidents and injuries are hand injuries, we need to look at what are they doing. Are they not training their people properly? Are they not giving the correct PPE? Are the tools not correct or not in good shape? So you really have to look beyond just that, yes, we've checked everything in the box. And it's for your protection and for theirs as well, of course. So contractor management should be treated like any other management system that you have. And all management systems that you're using within your company should talk together. Because at the end of the day, we are one company. It's one company and everything that happens affects that company's bottom line, finances, responsibility, ability to work. So within all management systems, you know, you're going to have a quality management system, you're going to have an HR management system, you're going to have a procurement management system, and you're Contractor qualification should be part of your management system because it needs to match and meet the requirements of the other management systems that you have. It cannot be and should not be standalone. And that's one of the things that needs to be kind of removed is the contractor management doesn't necessarily have to be just in the H&S department. It should include other departments as well that are going to end up being impacted by the decisions that the EHS department makes. And I'm a big person, a big believer in collaboration. The more people that you can bring to the table, they bring experiences, they bring knowledge, they bring a wealth of information that can only enhance what you're doing. So the more collaboration you get, the better off your end product is going to be.
So when we're looking at contractor management systems, one of the things that we want to look at is the maturity of their safety program because we are hiring them on a safety-related basis, not only on skills of perhaps the tasks they do, but definitely safety. So when we're looking at work processes and we're looking at are we going to use their process or are we going to use our processes, some of the things you want to look at when you're looking at their safety program is do they have a program established? Are they implementing that program? Do they maintain it? Do they review it? Do they communicate those reviews? How often do they review it? Was there any need for improvement? And then, of course, the big one that's a showstopper is there was no component in place at all. You need to evaluate the success and the maturity of their safety programs while you're doing your contractor management so that you can determine how much control you need to have over that contractor. If they have phenomenal operating procedures and safety programs and you can see that they're updating them, they're reviewing them, they're critiquing them, then they're really dedicated to the safety of their people, certainly yours. Whereas if you have someone that doesn't have a safety program or has a safety program that doesn't meet OSHA requirements or your requirements, you might want to do a little mentoring with them and you might want to do a little, you know, building and, and developing with them in order to get them to where you want them to be. And that's okay because that's a great thing. It makes them a safe worker and that only makes every industry safer. So here's kind of an example of a maturity of a safety program, you know, when you're going through, and this is just some quick and easy things, you know, when you're looking at housekeeping, when you're auditing their safety programs and their, their safety policies, how often do you see something like housekeeping? Is it once? Code of safe practices? Good housekeeping is necessary? Is that the only place that they address good housekeeping? Is it only in bloodborne pathogens, which is something hopefully that isn't, you know, come across very often? Or do they address housekeeping, in their silica program, in their fire extinguisher program, in their hot work program? Where are they addressing these things? And the same thing with grounding assurance. Where are you finding that they ground their equipment? What if they're using something, you know, that, that's a flammable liquid? Do they talk about, you know, bonding and grounding in their safety programs? And is it in their flammable and combustible program? So looking at how frequently, you know, finding the answer once in a safety policy isn't really sufficient. You need to find it multiple times to show that that's part of their culture. They're emphasizing this and they're drilling it into the heads of their workers. Proven practices. You know, a lot of times you hear people say best practices. I prefer to use proven practices because a proven practice shows you exactly that, that it's proven. It's tried and proven. So obviously, Verifying requirements are accurate and clearly understood. That's a really big one. Don't assume anybody knows. You know, a great training tool is, this is what I need done. Okay, now tell me what I need done and make sure that they can give back to you what you told them that they need to do. And then making sure that the company's performance goals and objectives are aligned with yours. Making sure that they are of the same mindset. And then obviously, we need to evaluate and modify as necessary. These kind of contracts cannot be put on a shelf and just collect dust. These need to be a living document. Outsourcing work, we outsource so much of our work. 
sometimes we do the first phase of machining and then we send it out to be coded, we send it out to be painted. Those again are extension of your company. Those again are a contractor that you're giving work to. So you want to think of them as being a contractor as well. And some triggers, strategies, and incentives. What makes us look at contractors? Risk, spend, and volume, legal requirements, stakeholders, social pressure, all of these community pressure, all of these things are triggers for when we need to look at when we're thinking about a contractor. And then obviously industry, industry types, some chemical industries with very heavy regulations versus a clothing industry. You need to look again at the risk imposed to determine how in-depth your contract needs to be. How is all of this managed? Pre-qualification selection. Obviously, some of that is going to be by location, by work type, by ability. Auditing, we want to go through and audit their programs, audit their performances. Training, we want to look at their training. How good was their training? Like we mentioned, just because they say that they've had lift truck training doesn't mean that they can drive a lift truck without dropping a load. So we really want to look at the depth of their training. Mentoring and communicating. You don't have to refuse work to someone just because their program isn't where you want it to be. You can definitely take the time to develop, communicate, mentor, and build that relationship with a contractor so that you have people you can rely on and people that truly understand your scope of work and what your goals and objectives are. Not only theirs, but yours. And then obviously assessing and monitoring. You have to constantly after every job. I recommend, and I know it's not done very often, when you complete a job, everybody does a job safety analysis, a hazard safety analysis at the beginning of the job. And then they kind of invest it at the job site or they put it away. Do you ever look at them after the job? Do you ever go back and look and assess and monitor the success of that work? Were steps missed? Were steps done that weren't on the JSA? Why did that happen? Was it not in the operating procedures? Was it not needed? Was something needed that wasn't there? Was there a change in personnel? Was that documented? A change in tooling, was that documented? So auditing your JSA after the work and gathering that data is important, as important as doing the JSA to begin with. So those kind of things, auditing your contractor at the end, I have found great value. You know, we do all of this pre-qualification, and in my past experiences, I've received um, job reports every day. I've received a safety report every day from the contractors. And what I have done in the past is I go and I meet with them post-job, and I review all of their safety reports. So many times I get there, and they've got their TRIR, and they've got their safety policies, and I tell them, no, 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 we've done that already. Now we're going to look at what you told me happened every day on my job site, and we have a communication. Lots of times they'll say to me, yeah, that's not what really happened. Yeah, this is what really happened. So again, that communication gives you bigger insight to what happens in the field, and it lets them know that you have an, an invested interest in knowing what happened either to them or because of them and not just writing them off because something happened but working with them and developing and monitoring and making those commitments to these contractors so when we're looking at company relationships we need to remember that there's a lot of people that are involved in the company relationship it is not just 
the person, whether it's legal procurement, HSME, the person that issues that contract, we have to think that our suppliers, our subcontractors, the regulators, when regulators come in, they're going to want to know how that person was chosen. Your end customers are going to want to know perhaps why you outsourced it to that person. And then obviously your stakeholders, people that have invested in your company, people that have invested in your community. You have the answer to a lot of people, not just your boss. There's a lot of people that need to be answered to. So having all of this documentation very clear, very well defined, and very well documented is a huge component of contractor management. And then we're going to look at how important is a robust contractor management system. It is very important. So OSHA, a couple of years ago, as you probably know, put in the multi-employer clause. And these are just a couple of little things I wanted to share with you. Could just two or three slides because there's a million of them out there. But because of the multi-employer citation clause, a lot of companies are getting fined because of their contractors. This one here, the controlling employers, the one that has general supervisor authority, including violations. That was an electrical contractor. On this one here, the contractor was cited for subcontractor violations. On this next one here, the, they hired a subcontractor, and then they hired a subcontractor, and it wasn't managed. So you need to constantly look at that tier. Where are these contractors within your tier? And then general contractors can be liable for subcontractors. So that trickle-down effect is pretty, pretty broad slope right now. Um, you know, they, they have to keep track of everybody. There's an interesting story um, that was shared um, publicly that a major corporation was fined by a regulator because of something that a contractor did that was six tiers down. How do you manage something that's six tiers down? The amount of work that it would require. But this is where OSHA has that broad sweep that they can just say, you're responsible for all of your contractors, no matter how far away. So reviewing contractors, reviewing subcontractors, and making sure that you know where your people are finding work out to can be really important from a legal standpoint and obviously from a work standpoint. And then this is just another one. Um, just to kind of give you some different examples, these are different uh, types of works, electrical, university, just different types of work. It really doesn't matter what your industry is. Everybody is subject to the multi-employer policy. And then it's really great to have a contractor management cycle. It's really great to have that contractor engagement, the contractor feedback. You're going to do the auditing, have accountability, both sides. Do that gap analysis, do that gap closure. It's important that if you have something that is open-ended or perhaps there's a question that's not answered, that just like if you're doing an accident investigation, you have to go back through and make sure that all of the action items are closed out and that that gap closure is there. And it's never a problem to ask these questions. It's more a problem to not ask these questions because you want to make sure that you have addressed every issue that could possibly walk onto your facility. And you want to make sure that you've provided your contractor 
with all the information that they need so that they can come and work on your facility in a safe way. And one of the biggest ways of doing that is the vetting, the assignment of duty, review of procedures and policies, review of insurances, and even field audits, making sure that you're looking at them during the course of work. And then, of course, obviously having those end project communications. Those end project communications do not have to be punitive, and they shouldn't be punitive. They should just be a communication to make sure that everybody understands what went great and what went wrong. Sometimes we focus so much on just what went wrong and not on our successes that we lose track of how great someone can be. You know, sometimes we need to look at our successes and say, this is the model that we're going to follow. Let's use this as our template rather than looking at what went wrong and go back and changing everything. Because sometimes what you have is pretty good, um, but you want to always enhancing it. So going forward, you know, going forward, how will the whole contractor management process evolve? Will it evolve? It absolutely will. It absolutely will evolve. There's going to become more demand, uh, increased worker management. Uh, there's a lot more contract work now, even from an engineering level or from, like we spoke about, an IT level or a nursing level. There's a lot more freelance work out there right now. So having these qualification and competency checks in place is really critical. And certainly, you know, we're talking about the gap, the skills gap within hiring. Our older generation is retiring and we have a little bit of a skills gap. So we need to really make sure that we're managing these people properly. And then machine learning and predictive analysis, IA, it's going all over the place. Portable stuff is fantastic. You can, so much of everything is portable now. All these devices that you can find things on your iPads, on your cell phone, pretty much anywhere you go. And having that portability aids in making sure that you know in real time what's going on. Sustainability and corporate social responsibility, those are huge because you want to keep your company in good eyes. Obviously, you want to have a good, strong company, and you want to make sure that your people are proud to work there, but you want other people to come and work with you, and you want to be a leader in the industry. So having that sustainability by having safe work practices and a great safety culture really promote uh, your company twofold, tenfold. And then obviously, there's going to be a stricter focus on leading data. As regulations change, for those of you that are ISO involved, you know, you know that OSAS 18001 is going away, the ISO 45001 is coming in. Looking at all of the data, looking at all of these leading indicators is really, really where we want to go. We want to look ahead and expand our horizon and not just use, like we spoke about at the very beginning, not just use those yes-no checkboxes because those really don't provide you with adequate information for the people that are actually physically on site or the people that are performing work for you at their own location. So we really want to look at all of that leading data. And in closing, you know, it's clear, ever-risking use, uh, use and risk of contractors and suppliers is definitely going to increase. Development of those relationships is so critical to the success of your business. Having a system where information is communicated, understood, and shared easily 
makes the process so much better. That's another thing about a portable, the portability of an electronic system, a database system, is that everybody can look at it. Everybody can see it. You can see it 24 hours a day. You don't have to wait until someone is in their office. You don't have to look at a spreadsheet and hope that that spreadsheet is updated appropriately. And of course, the very bottom line, safety is just good business. I know that the safety departments always take a hit because we don't make money, because we don't come and give a profit. It's hard sometimes to see that return of an investment. But when you look at your reputation, your ability to obtain work, your ability to retain good talent, because if people aren't proud to work for you, they aren't going to stay with you. So safety is just good business. And that's it. And I thank you all for coming and listening, rather. And I hope that you found valuable information in this. Um, and then just does anybody have any questions? Well, excellent. Great job, Lori, and thanks for your insights and expertise. Uh, we will have uh, some time for uh, some questions today. Before we, before we get that started, though, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. We really appreciate your input because it will help us improve future webcasts. If you aren't seeing the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button on the lower right part of your screen. And with that, we will get to some questions. First, which document is the best to give to the floor foreman or lead? So for me, I think that the bridging document, I think that the middle document in the slide pack is the best because it's simple and it just simply says what the work is, what element of your management system you're talking about, and you can add in the ones you want or the ones that you don't want. And it just says who's responsible for the work, the hiring company or the contractor, and it gives the opportunity to put in additional notes. And I think that that's detailed enough to give good direction, but I think it's simple enough to not overwhelm them that they're reading volumes of unnecessary text. Next one, how can we encourage upper management to focus more on contractor management? Upper management, you know, we're moving in a trend now where it's not okay any longer to just say, is upper management involved in your health and safety program and say yes. We're moving into a new era where upper management has to really be visible. They have to be down where the folks can see them. They have to be following the safety rules. And they have to realize that they are the leaders of their safety culture. They are what everybody looks to. If the leaders at any level, whether it's a line leader, a supervisor, or the CEO, if they do not support and follow the policies and procedures that the workers are expected to follow and support, then how can the workers be expected to do it? They can't. If upper management doesn't lead by example, nobody ever will. And that's so critical when you're looking at contractor management because the upper management has to say, we demand this of our contractors. We want them to be as safe as our people, and we're going to treat them like our people. All right. We've got time for one more question, and that is, how does the interface agreement uh, differ from a safety plan? So the interface agreement and the safety plan, you know, without seeing your safety plan, I'm going to be talking abstractly. So the interface agreement is really um, 
where you would take your management system, whether it's an ISO management system or an API management system or an IOGP management system, and you would take each one of those elements, very much like a safety questionnaire, and make each one of those elements a tab of its own. And then you can break it down into how intricate you want to know as to each section. And then, like we mentioned, they can go through and say, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, not applicable. We do part of it. We don't do all of it. And then they can, you can put in a stop gate where you can say, okay, if you've said no to this, then move on to the next question because everything below is out of your scope of work. So it's really uh, just a really more detailed about their, operate, about their uh, safety management system. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time today. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speaker. Once again, hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey that's on your screen to give us your feedback, too. Uh, and that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Lori Kanapi, everyone in Aveda, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day. <laughs>